Hey, it's Jeff Benjamin here with The Investment News Podcast. I'm here with my good friend and colleague, Bruce Kelly. How you doing, Bruce? I'm great, Jeff. Thanks. We've got uh, four topics to, to unpack today and a little bonus feature. What, uh, what are we starting off with, Bruce? You know, the gentleman who's the head of the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, Jay Clayton, was in the news uh, over the past week but not in for a way that people who read investment news would think. He got involved in the middle of a very strange and bitter political fracas between uh, the Trump White House, uh, Attorney General Barr, and the uh, head of the Southern District of New York, which is one of the big areas where the Justice Department and the FBI do their investigations and uh, prosecutions of all kinds of white-collar criminals. So, out of the blue, uh, about a week from our taping ago, there were press releases flying. Jay Clayton was supposed to be uh, replacing Jeff Berman as the head of the Southern District of New York, even though Jay Clayton has never had any prosecutorial experience. He's just a he, he's, he's never been a criminal attorney of any kind. But from the investment news point of view for investment news readers, Jay Clayton has been a guy who's not been afraid to really... Um, take a stand on issues involving investment advisors. Jeff, what are, what are one or two of those that stand out to you? Well, he, you're right. I mean, let, let's put it in context here. He was nominated by President Trump. He's been there three years. Yep. Um, he's always presented himself as a moderate um, because it's clear that he has greater aspirations beyond the, uh, the role as chairman of the SEC. His family's in New York. He's stated that he wants to get back to New York. I was talking to our colleague, Mark uh, Sheff, a little bit earlier today, who, who covers this pretty extensively from Washington. He says that <clears throat> Clayton wants this job as U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of New York, which is obviously a big job. But his, It's a huge job. Right. But his ultimate goal is would be to become Attorney General. That considering some of the things and positions he's taken at the SEC would require a probably a Republican administration, even though he might not have had that in mind a while ago as he kind of presents himself as a moderate. But getting back to your original question, Mark, about some of the issues that he's done, the, the Reg BI was a, uh, was, was, went through with very little support from Democratic members of the commission. Uh, he's had uh, conservative positions on proxy voting. That's because the brokerage industry loves Reg BI. It's not. It's gonna. It's not going to cost them nearly as much to implement. Right. As the DOL fiduciary standard. Right. So he's got that strike one with Democrats right there. Right. So those are the kind of things that he's uh, he's kind of has been, I guess, interpreted as being more conservative. And then there's that issue of trying to allow for certain private equity type investments alternatives that are not listed, not publicly traded in retirement plans or moving them down to retail class investors. Now, this is where is, you and I, this is where the rubber meets the road for you and me. This is where we disagree, right? Uh, probably a little bit. How so? <laughs> well, I don't think, I think you First think- First of all, explain, the, uh, what does Clayton want to do with uh, alternative investments for 
less than accredited investors or people who don't have a million I think he wants to increase access to them. Right. Uh, he's, he's made efforts along those lines to increase access to investment products that have historically been only available to high net worth investors. Investors right. based on their income and net worth qualify, are, are considered either qualified or accredited. And those are typically and, non-liquid types of investments, right? Uh, well, less liquid. Less uh, liquid. Not, okay. Non-liquid would suggest zero trading ever. But um, yes, they're less liquid. They're, uh, they can be more expensive. They oftentimes are. But to me, that's the biggest distinction. I don't look at private equity investments or private or venture capital or hedge funds as, oh my gosh, that's you know like stepping into the lion's den. I just look at them as being more sophisticated. But I guess that's the reason that regulators forever have thought that retail class investors, if you don't have enough money, you shouldn't be able to invest in these things. And that's where I do disagree. Right. Well, I'm a liquidity bear, right? Okay. I th- from 20 years of watching this stuff and writing about it and reporting on it and, and having investors who've bought REITs and private placements call me up and say, what do I do with my money? You know, I can't get my uh, my my investment is frozen, right? Less than having less than complete liquidity for someone in a retirement account to me is very dangerous. That's why I'm skeptical of this of Clayton's push to expand these types of products for retail investors and retail advisors. Really, secondly, is that often in my experience, these things, private placements, non traded REITs, closed end funds, etc., come with the higher commissions or the, some of the highest commissions in the business. And so if my grandma is going to get uh, the same deal on this as Yale is uh, in terms of what her fees are going to be, I'd say, that's cool. You know, go for it, grandma. But if she's going to get gouged 10 percent, 10 cents on every dollar that she puts into a private placement, a private placement, I would say to uh, grandma, don't invest. Yeah, well. So I'm a bear on these things. I, I don't know your grandma. She sounds like a wonderful person. But I will say this, that liquidity is something that's an issue if your entire portfolio is invested in something that's less liquid. But if you're putting a portion of your entire portfolio in something that's, you know, less liquid, private equity, it's it shouldn't be the first thing you turn to when you need money. It's just it's comparable to if you own a house, uh, that's an incredibly valuable asset to a lot of people. But it's not very liquid. Now, if you needed money in a hurry, you, the first thing you'd do would not probably be to sell your house. That would, might be the last thing you would do. And in terms of access, this is my problem. with I don't have a problem with limiting access or even making these investments available only through, a, a, I guess, a certified financial advisor or somebody that's qualified in other ways to, to be the intermediary with these products. What I have a problem with is measuring accreditation or qualification based on how much money you have. It's, it's, the, it's the Paris Hilton argument, and no offense to Paris Hilton, I've never met her, but I've heard often it compared to, is Paris Hilton qualified to buy a private equity or a hedge fund based on her assets when maybe some guy who's a professor of finance at a major university but only makes $100,000 a year is not qualified? I mean, if they're going to have criteria limiting access to certain investments, it should be something other than uh, how much money you have. 
Well, I think Paris Hilton's advisor is probably qualified to buy a hedge fund uh, or a private equity fund for her because she's worth 50 or 100 million or whatever it is, you know? So I got no problems with that. Yeah. See, we don't disagree as much as you think. I I just, <laughs> my, my problem, it, it, my problem has always been with these things. It's like they say, if you have this much money, you can invest in this thing. Yeah, to I me, understand. If, if, if yeah. you have the money to meet the minimum, you should be able to invest in it. And that's well, another th- way that these products keep smaller investors at bay is by setting the minimums where they are. Well, then what are you going to have a whole new round of regulation to test people's qualifications if, if you're a professor and you can buy into these things or not? I thought you're an anti-regulation, a deregulation kind of guy. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how to <laughs> fix it. I'm just telling you what the problem is. And I, I don't think it's right to sit there and say, if you have this much money, you can invest in this product. Right. And uh, if you don't, no matter how smart you are, you can't. But if you have a financial advisor, why not let financial advisors be the screens on these things? That's what that's their job point. is anyway. They're fiduciaries if they're doing their job. You know, that's a good point. <clears throat> um, maybe they say you can't buy it as an individual, but you can buy it through your financial advisor. Well, so, that brings us. This conversation actually hits on something that I want to talk about for our next topic, which I'm broadly calling like a new feature called broker pay. I've written about plenty of times and how brokers use uh, the high commissions on products like private placements and REITs and the like as an incentive to sell the product, right? But in this case, what we're doing is talking about broker pay. And one of the major broker-dealer networks out there is tweaking its pay grid for advisors that it's just acquired in a huge acquisition. And um, we're going to get to that in a second. This, So we're really talking about compensation and the structure of that and how advisors are getting paid here. And I just want to ask you a question first, Jeff, before we start. Can I ask you one? Uh, yeah, please do. So, hey, Jeff, what would you think if you worked at company XYZ and then that company was uh, and that firm was bought by company ABC and then that second company told you at XYZ that you were going to get a pay cut for the same work that you'd been doing for the past five years? What would you think about that? Okay, that that feels like a trick question. (laughs) <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I usually like to get more money, uh, not less, but, uh, I, I think it's pretty obvious. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like that, but, um, I, I know where you're going with this, but, but, but I also know that it's qualified. I mean, I don't have to stay with these companies. Do I, can I go somewhere else? Am <laughs> I not a free person? Around, just like Smokey Robinson once saying, yeah. right. And the Beatles, um, you better believe it. But that company uh, that was buying you, ABC, said, hey, we're going to improve your overall revenue growth and revenue strategy by better technology and all kinds of bells and whistles, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So basically, this is what happened recently with Advisor Group's acquisition of Ladenburg Thalman. And Advisor Group is a huge broker-dealer network of you know, several thousand advisors, Ladenburg, the same, several thousand advisors. They announced in November that advisor group was buying Ladenburg uh, Thalman and for 325 a share, I think it was a billion three, very large transaction. And they're going to merge. The deal was closed in February. And so now one of the big broker dealers at advisor group or at Ladenburg Thalman rather is absorbing some of the other Ladenburg Thalman broker dealers and those are the guys who are going to get a pay cut. Mm-hmm. So if you were an advisor at 
one of those other BDs and you were doing $500,000 a year in sales and commissions, you were getting a pretty sweet pay rate and you were walking away with 475,000, you were getting paid out $475,000 on that $500,000. You're going to be making about $15,000 annually less in the future when you get merged into Securities America. But on the other hand, Securities America is supposed to have better technology, better services, better marketing programs, all that kind of stuff. So the way that they're trying to present this broker pay change is, you know, we're kind of, you know, slapping you with one hand and then giving you uh, a, a shiny new toy with the other. But to your point, this gives an incentive for advisors to look around and say, hey, is there a better place for me to work? Yeah. And uh, maybe they don't care about that. Maybe they figure out they'll, uh, they'll, there'll be some attrition, but uh, it'll balance out. And maybe that technology really is good enough to improve efficiency and, and so forth. I mean, to me, this is just basic economies of scale. Uh, that's why these companies merge like this. But I, I mean, I don't know what you're supposed to do about it. If your company's acquired and, and you end up making less money at the new company, you can either, I guess, live with it or go find a job somewhere else. I, I, I don't know what other option there is. Are, are you suggesting there is some other option? Well, you can also, right, break off on your own and become a completely independent RIA. And I think you had some interesting insight into what RIAs were doing when it comes to working client portfolios and asset management. What, what were you thinking about that, Jeff? Yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, good, uh, good point. Good segue. Um, I did a, a story earlier this week on some research from, from Wisdom Tree and to be fully disclosed, uh, Wisdom Tree does have a dog in this fight. Uh, they have an, an outsourced asset management platform uh, where advisors can go on and, and allocate assets to the, some of the Wisdom Tree model portfolios. But Wisdom Tree is not alone in this. This is a big, big industry with these turnkey asset management platforms, and the warehouses have been doing it forever. The point is, the trend is moving toward outsourcing asset management. Outsource or asset management has been become a commodity a long time ago, and unless you're doing something really, really unique, if you're you know building custom portfolios for each client and allocating money to sophisticated investment strategies and products, there's the value of the time you're spending on asset management is is it's just a waste of time. You can, you can get these services for you elsewhere and you can do what the whole industry is always talking about, becoming a holistic planner where you can spend more time on client prospecting, more time on other things that are not related to asset management like estate planning and tax planning and, and becoming more of a almost a family office type, type advisor. But Jeff, um, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. You know, when this business really started to take this independent RA business started to take root 25, 30 years ago, right? In the early to mid 90s, mm -hmm. the advisors, the brokers who were leaving the big Wall Street institutions or breaking away from the insurance companies to do this, it was almost a point of pride or, or a point of machismo, wasn't it? To say, oh, I'm going to run my own money. Yeah. I have my own portfolio management team. It was really a part of a, um, you know, I want to I want to do a long short portfolio or have a long short 
on top of my growth yeah. portfolio, on top of my growth, my my value portfolio, and then have my you know and er, and add in emerging market bonds. And there was a tremendous amount of um, distinction and pride in that. And then Schwab as a custodian and TD and its uh, and Fidelity as they became more prominent in the custodian market, they were offering tools for advisors to run uh, portfolios in that way, weren't they? They were and and they are. And that's the point that it, that stuff is available. And to, to, to your point, there are still a lot of advisors out there that are running their own portfolios. And that's what they do. Paul, do you Schatz, have any numbers about that? Did the, did the I, study or I, the survey have any numbers on that? No, I, I don't. I don't have. I don't know what the breakdown is. That would be a great thing to have. Um, the I, all I know is the trend is toward outsourcing. I was just going to say, Paul Schatz, president of Heritage Capital. That's what he does. He's a portfolio manager for his clients. He's an RIA, a financial advisor, but he manages portfolios. But unless you're at that level, unless you're that sophisticated, and you're doing it, and you're you're basically on your computer trading. It, it really doesn't make sense to do this. I mean, something that came out of the wisdom tree thing was the, the, the focus on semantics. They said if an advisor goes to his clients and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to outsource your asset management or outsource your money to somebody else, and they, they kind of like wince at that and they, they resist it a little bit. Um, because they think that's what well, I'm that's paying what you I mean for. about the, the kind of the, 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 the machismo part of the marketing thing, right, is, is I get to run the money. Trust me. Yeah. And, and then another part of that is because so many of these firms charge their clients based on how much money is in the portfolio. And they're going to say that one piece, that thing that you're you're pegging, you know, my fees to, you're going to let somebody else handle. Right. But what they said is you're, it's all semantics. You present it to them as instead of saying we're going to outsource it, you say, hey, we're going to we're going to access the best technology and resources available <laughs> to let them build your portfolios. That's good you marketing know, talk. It, well, it is good marketing talk, but it also is, it's, you know, uh, do a survey and say, hey, do you want free health care? Everybody say, oh, yeah, I love that. Or do they say, hey, do you want to pay taxes so everybody can have free health care? It's like, uh, not talking. So it's all how you present it. It's the same thing, but it's, you know, semantics. Sometimes yeah. semantics is. And speaking of semantics yes. and the way you talk, uh, this is a this is a, a Bruce Kelly favorite. He's a babe in the woods when it comes to potty talk and bad language. And uh, he has a, a burr under his saddle on this one. Let me hear about this, Bruce. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a burr. It might be a, more like a pee, like a princess okay. of the pee or something, you know, waking me up. But, um, you know, last week we, our first section on the very first investment news podcast was about just kind of a broad and specific discussion about racial discrimination in the uh, brokerage business and and the role of minorities and the like. And that's going to be an ongoing conversation that we're going to be having, right? Absolutely. In these months, years, I'm sure. But one of the things that we talked about was this lawsuit by a woman who was the former head of um, uh, global head of diversity at Morgan Stanley with 16,000 advisors. Her name is Marilyn Booker. And she just filed this lawsuit about a week ago, a week and a half ago in federal court in Brooklyn. And broadly, the, it, she's alleging you know racial discrimination and gender discrimination, retaliation on equal pay. She was laid off last December, as I understand, with a bunch of other Morgan Stanley executives, a thousand plus executives or so. So a detail that we didn't get to in our conversation last week was a detail from her lawsuit. And it 
kind of was supposed to illustrate the racism at the firm by an insult that a, a white male executive said to her when they were competing for the distinction of who was responsible for bringing in a $90 million client, who was supposed to get the accolades Mm -hmm. and therefore probably likely who was supposed to get paid. Right. So in her complaint, uh, she's alleging that Morgan Stanley allowed this executive to insult her, right. White male executive uh, who was upset that he could not take credit for the client. He, he supposedly ran around the office. This is what I love. This is the detail I love. He ran around the office and told employees that Ms. Booker, quote, pulled my pants down and ripped me a new a-hole, right? That's right from the lawsuit. Now, I'm sure Ms. Booker understands. I don't know. I'm a white male. I don't know anything about being racially profiled or anything, right? That's not my, that hasn't been my experience. That's not where I'm coming from. She understands that better than I ever can imagine to, first off. Secondly, with that said, this is the kind of talk that if you're if you're black or white or or male or female or whatever, this is kind of how brokers and financial advisors have always talked. (laughs) So I don't know if this is buttressing her claim of racial discrimination and harassment or like, or is it just kind of a snapshot into the the kind of culture that exists in these types of institutions, Mm, yeah, you know? Now, these guys, remember back in the 90s, Smith Barney had the boom, boom room out on Long Island. That was, you know, the guys had, you know, in an office would have strippers in on Fridays and booze parties and in the basement of the building and this kind of stuff. You know, this has been the, you know, it used to be very flagrant and public on Wall Street, and now it's much more uh, sort of oce, very quiet. And because people usually don't file lawsuits on Wall Street, but they're fi- they're required to file a private arbitration claims whenever they want to bring a complaint like this, you don't really get to hear what's it said behind the closed doors of huge institutions uh, on Wall Street. So, you know, is this broker? Uh, unnamed executive in this complaint being racist or is he just being a, or is he just being a jerk if this is what he actually said? I don't know, but it sure sounds like a typical guy on Wall Street who just lost out on a big payday from a huge account. Uh, first of all, I don't understand why the person wouldn't be named, but as a former Marine and current journalist, I'm no stranger to salty language. <laughs> um, so and in my experience, Language behind the scenes, away from clients, is is prevalent everywhere in industry, in professional jobs. I think wherever you go, my wife worked at a bakery for a long time, and sometimes she would come home and tell me things that I cannot believe people were talking that way around cookies and muffins and such that uh, that offended me. <laughs> you know, whenever we swear at each other in the newsroom, it's about a story or something, Jeff. Not uh, not your percentage of commission on a ninety. Yeah, million I don't know because we don't account, work with ninety right? million dollar accounts. I mean, so the financial stakes, the financial stakes are different, right? When you're put in an incentivized right. environment. Uh, yeah, I, I like I said, I, I, I 
right? Professionally, I try and keep myself clean, uh, my language clean when I'm talking to colleagues and, and others and, and in the newsroom. You succeed. You're very Thank clean you. but, but I, you know, I don't think it's, it's, uh, <laughs> it's that egregious to, for, you know, we're talking about a $90 million deal. I, you know, maybe it could have been worse. And I, I, you know, I'm not the judge or the jury in this case, but I don't see where that is certainly racial, that statement. But, um, and, and if, right. you know, it, it's certainly offensive and rude and inconsiderate and immature, but um, I, I don't, I mean, I, I don't even know where to go with that. It's, uh, it's, you know, if we, if we had right. recordings of everybody's offices 24 hours a day, we'd probably hear stuff like that all the time, everywhere. I like the line, though, from the lawsuit where it says that the unnamed executive, quote, ran around and told employees mm-hmm. that Booker had done this. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> sounds like a real, uh, a real fun, you know, holiday party. Jeez, what a, what a great <laughs> yeah. place to work, right? <laughs> hey, Jeff, what's in your, uh, you, you love this broker's notebook section. You kind of get to talk about something or, or maybe someday I'll be able to do this <laughs> talk about something that we don't, uh, that, that we don't necessarily write about all week long. Yeah. But it's just something that's on your mind. That's in your bean. That's grinding <clears throat> yeah, away at your um, bean there. Uh, well, what's going on with you? Who's this Doc, Doc Kennedy, Kennedy guy you keep talking He's about? a uh, president and founder of a, of a consulting firm called Advisor Law based in Denver. Uh, what it does is it specializes in in uh, broker expungements, uh, getting customer complaints. What's an expungement, Jeff? Uh, it's it's basically it clearing a clearing a a, uh, a black mark off your record if you have a customer complaint. And why do brokers like that? Because they think and know that uh, potential clients will look at those on broker check and see. Uh, how much trouble you've been in throughout your career, or, or, or how many complaints you've had against you, disciplinary actions. It could be a number of things. So if it's expunged, that means it's not on the broker check record, which means that the broker looks as clean well, as it, the driven it, Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just like, remember when you were a juvenile, probably breaking into cars and stuff, and when you be turned 18, that was all expunged from your record. So, and you didn't even have to call Doc <laughs> Kennedy. It was just, it's the way it works when you're a minor. But for brokers, and and I'm not, believe me, I'm not defending Doc Kennedy uh, in any way. So what does Doc Kennedy do? Uh, what he does is he has a like a ninety percent uh, success rate in getting these these records expunged. But that's pretty good. And and he dominates the industry. He does almost two thirds of all expungement cases across the industry. Yeah, he no way. He he did. I think the most recent year. How does he do that? He's it's got a factory. He's got thirty six lawyers working for him. So, but <laughs> thirty-six yeah. attorneys. But but oh, that's well, a, a lot of them aren't his direct employees. They're just under contract with him. Still, but here's what's going on. I mean, the the ninety-three, ninety percent success rate. That's that's industry wide. So that's not to him. That's that's if you apply for expungement. Okay. Uh, uh, request expungement at Finra. They almost always get expunged. Yes. And so. FINRA acknowledges there might be a problem with their system. So the plaintiff's bar doesn't like that, buddy. I can tell you the plaintiff's lawyers hate that. So Doc Kennedy, he is being he is currently being investigated by the uh, the Office of Attorney Regulation Council in Denver. And they are based in Colorado. Yeah, he's based in Colorado. 
um, because of a complaint that was filed against him. He has he had a little bit of a a rift with one of his uh, a broker that got his record expunged. He did a little. Apparently, there was some side work requested done. There's a four thousand dollar bill that went left unpaid. Uh, so uh, this guy, I guess, through somehow the the communication got rough, and the the broker filed a case against Kennedy. Huh. So now, I mean, and I know this because that uh, investigator in Colorado called me because they read the the story I wrote about Kennedy about a year ago and wanted me to, I guess they wanted my notes. They said I might be called to testify if there is a, if there is a trial. Oh, Jesus. Um, so I talked to Kennedy. He, he, he gave me the whole story about what happened and how it happened. And I mean, it, it kind of looks like this, this regular, I wouldn't, I shouldn't assume that this Colorado regulator is working with FINRA and I don't assume that, but if they were, it would be a way to, you know, kind of get this guy off the streets when he's creating all this, wreaking all this havoc on, on FINRA's untidy system. Um, but there probably is a better way to maybe reduce the number of expungements. Um, and, and I think FINRA needs to maybe wrap their head around that one. Yeah, the two aren't necessarily related. No. You know, how many expungements there are and what FINRA's system is and and who's ushering, monitoring these things the, through the traffic courts, you know, of FINRA. Well, yeah, they have arbitration panels that, to get this you know, done. that are just regular people. Right. But is, is Kennedy a lawyer himself or no? Yes. Yes. Because some of these guys, you know, who do this aren't necessarily lawyers. You don't have to be a lawyer. Uh, in, in, in 44 states, uh, you do not have to be a lawyer. Right. So you don't even have to be a lawyer to help brokers get their records expunged. Exactly. Um, there were some guys out in Brooklyn years ago who were doing this very similar thing. And I think for Kennedy, you know, and or, or, or firms like Kennedy, imagine, you know, 33 lawyers churning through all this stuff all the time, charging the uh-huh. fees, you know. Yeah. They, you know, this is a, a good it, industry for them, the expungement It's a, it's industry, a massively you know? good industry. They're making for, a lot of money. Right. And, and to Kennedy's defense a little bit, you know, there are times when, I mean, a client claim could be on anything. It could be completely off the wall and it's there. It doesn't matter if the, if the broker wins the case or not, or even how it's settled or if it's settled, it stays on the record. And those are the kind of things that, you know, anybody, you could be accused of anything. And do you want that on your permanent record? You know? So, that's that is some of that stuff. Right. Also, the, with these state investigations, you know, like you said, you got a call from Colorado, et cetera. And there's this one, you know, complaint by this one advisor over four thousand dollars and who pays his fee, et cetera. When these states in, are involved in these matters, I, I really question what the level of investigation is they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, are they, you know, issuing subpoenas? here or are they just making phone calls what is it they're actually doing yeah you know because i've been involved in a, a few of these myself over the years and h- how deep is the investigation and how thorough and what's the impact and what kind of outcome are they trying to yeah. have here I, you know i don't know i guess we'll, we'll figure it out if they if they call me to subpoena me i will let you know all the dirty details okay <laughs> now that would be good that would be good for a future episode uh, and we could not only co- we could call that yeah. reporter talk, you know, <laughs> as well as broker talk, you know. And um, with that, we want to conclude this uh, episode of the Investment News Podcast. Um, as uh, you all know, this is uh, posted 
every Monday, and you can find it at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Pay, and Stitcher. Please give us a shout out, and you can give us a review. Uh, you can write uh, my colleague Jeff Benjamin at Benji Rider on Twitter, or me, Bruce Kelly, uh, and I'm at BD News Guy on Twitter. We just want to thank everybody uh, involved in the, in the podcast, of course, uh, our production team. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Thanks very much.